Good morning, and thank you all for joining with us this morning. As Johnny mentioned, we're speaking about Anna. I'm not going to ask, but it would be interesting to know how many people have ever heard a sermon on Anna. I haven't. And I asked quite a few of my friends as I prepared for this and said, have you ever heard anybody preach on Anna? They said, no. They said, yeah, I've heard them speak about Anna in connection with Simeon and part of Simeon's story. But I have never heard anybody speaking about Anna on her own. Partly because there's only three verses in the Bible about her. And it seems to say very little about her. But why did Luke include her? Would the story have been any different? Why did he, as he went through all his documentation, and as he scrutinized from a historical point of view the life of Christ, why did he decide that this woman, Anna, deserved his attention? I'm sure he had sifted through dozens, hundreds of pieces of literature and accounts. And he had set a number of them aside. So, well, that doesn't fit. But Anna does. So why has he included her? It's interesting to notice that whenever the Bible talks about a witness in Deuteronomy chapter 19, it refers out where you will need a witness, you require two people. So was Luke using Simeon and Anna as witnesses? Possibly. It's also interesting to note that whenever Luke in his gospel, as you go through the gospel, you'll see frequently a male-female combination. Zechariah and Elizabeth, Simeon and Anna, right through to the Emmaus Road, where you have possibly a married couple. Is that why I included Anna? Possibly. So why did he decide that Anna held such an important place that she needed to be placed in Scripture. Let's read the story or the account. It's only three verses. You'll find them in Luke chapter 2, and they're verses 36 to 38. Luke 2, verses 36 to 38. Now, there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age. She had lived with her husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years. I did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instance, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So when they had performed all these things, according to the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. 
That's it. That's it. Many of you have to be. Uh, you're going to have to tie me down here, are you? Okay. Right. Many of you will have heard of me growing up in Japan. I had a Japanese granny. Whenever I arrived in Japan, I was seven years old, and this little four foot six Japanese woman looked after us. She introduced us to Japanese life and culture. And even when I was six foot tall and towered above her four foot six stature, she still somehow managed to give me a clip around the ear every so often. Her name was Tanaka-san. Some of you have actually met her. Tanaka-san, many years ago, was called home. But her name is interesting, Tanaka. It's made up of two Japanese characters. One is for the rice fields, and the other one is in the middle. And so therefore, if you were to directly translate her name, it would mean in the middle of the rice fields. Historically, her family obviously came from a farming community, and life was surrounded, kept to the rice field. That growing cycle. They were never out of the rice field. They would always be engaged in planting, harvesting, and all the work that was required in the middle of the rice field, Tanaka. And as Tanaka-san grew up with me, or I grew up with her, we grew up in a small assembly called Daikyomachi. And her name, Tanaka, almost was synonymous with her life in that assembly. She lived it. It was part of her life. She came along and supported. She prayed. She pastorally cared. She looked after. She took the children's work. She was, if you like, a perfect example of an elderly lady who was serving right to the end. And I use that example of Tanaka-san quite deliberately because of his anonymity. Because it is quite possible, and I could very easily have used a name from this congregation. But I would have embarrassed people. And it wasn't my intention to do that. There are people who have over the years, impacted on individuals' lives. And as those people have matured and those individuals have got older, we see them still continuing to serve. Maybe not as actively and at the forefront, but they're there. And frequently when my wife and I go out on pastoral visits and meet some of those who are at home, and who are watching this morning on YouTube and can no longer join with us. When you get talking to them, virtually every time, they tell us, we pray for you. 
we pray for you. A while today, they may no longer be physically in our presence meeting with us. They are engaged in a prayer battle for each and every one of us. Growing old. Growing old is not easy. Growing old brings all sorts of issues with it. I'll give you my, my medical history later if you're really that interested. But how we grow old, how we mature, how we serve to the end, how we finish. Is that the story of Anna? Yes. But is that the sole story of Anna? Let's look, let's look at it. She was a prophetess. A prophetess. It's interesting that whenever you read through the Bible and you come to the end of the Old Testament, you read the words of prophets, male prophets, men who had a revelation from God and spoke and prophesied, and their names are recorded for us there. You have Isaiah, Amos, and we could list them all. They're there. And then we have a period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, which is a period of complete and total silence. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament ends in darkness and opens in darkness, and then the light of the world comes in. And it's interesting as well that the first mention of a prophet is a prophetess. Not a prophet, male, but female. And there are only a couple of prophetesses mentioned in Scripture. Five in total. One you could dismiss from a, a negative perspective. Others are there. For example, Isaiah's wife is called a prophetess. Miriam, the, the sister of Moses, is called a, a prophetess. And a prophetess or a prophet doesn't necessarily restrict them to actually sitting down and, and foretelling the future. I know that's what we understand. But a prophet, or in this case a prophetess, is taking the Word of God and explaining it and opening it to people. We don't read of another prophetess in the Bible, in the New Testament, under the book of Revelation. Although there are a couple of hints with the daughters of Philip. So she was a prophetess. Obviously, she was familiar with the Word of God. She was of a great age. What age was Anna? I was unfortunately at a funeral service during the week of a friend who I have known for many years. We worked together and grew up together in Broadway Gospel Hall for many years. And it was on one of those occasions when everybody gathers together. And a lot of my friends and colleagues from Broadway Hall were there. One took great delight because he was the youngest. He was only 60. 
And his line was, what age are you now? And everybody who walked up to him, including myself, what age are you now? And I'd have given him my age. He says, yeah, but I'm only 60. And one elderly lady, and I hope she doesn't hear this, one lady who was advanced in age, older than all of us, came up to this fella, and we all said to him, ask her her age, because we knew fine well he wouldn't get an answer. There's something about asking people their age, especially older women. So what age was Anna? Well, believe it or not, it's controversial. As a matter of fact, if you look up your Bible dictionaries and commentaries and all the articles about Anna, there's more written about what age was Anna than anything else about Anna, as if that matters. Let's put it this way. She was at least 84. At least 84. And she had been married, and when she was married for seven years, she was widowed. Now, widowhood, or being a widow in Israel, Palestine, Judah, at that time was an extremely difficult time. That's why the epistles call upon the people to support the widows, because they had lost their livelihood. They had lost everything that they depended upon. And a young girl of possibly mid-twenties who had become a widow, the expectation would be for her to remarry, have another husband, have the security, but not Anna. Anna, from her widowhood, moved to the temple. She was there day and night day and night. Simeon came to the temple and met the child. Anna lived in the temple and met the child. Where did she sleep? We don't know. There is a hint, a clue, if you look at the book of Nehemiah, whenever the temple walls were being constructed, within the temple walls there were apartments made for those itinerant priests who would have come in. Was she there? I don't know. But she dwelt in the temple. The temple was an enormous building. The temple was a hive of activity. The white stone would almost, at times they said, would have blinded your eyes in the Middle Eastern sun. The front of it was a facade of gold. There was a, a courtyard in front of it that only the priests could enter, and then the people of Israel, the men of Israel could enter. And then behind that, there was an area which was called the court of the women, and around that was the court of the Gentiles. So the Jewish man could go further in than anyone else. If you were a Gentile, that is not a Jew, and you had approached the temple, You'd have been able to go in through one gate, and you'd have been in this massive courtyard, and there would have been a wall, a low wall around you, and there would have been a sign that said, you are not allowed to go any further on penalty of death. You couldn't have gone in any further. That was it. 
And if you went through that door and went in inside, you were allowed to go in if you were a woman. And if you wanted to go further than that, you had to be male. So there was a hierarchy, a structure. You just couldn't walk in to worship. Anna was in the court of women. She had to be. And in the court of women, there were four little rooms or four stables almost. And one of them in the front right-hand corner was the one of cleansing. And that's where Mary and Joseph would have come with the baby. And that's where Anna would have met Simeon and the child. But she didn't depart from the temple. She served God with prayers day and night, fasting and prayers day and night. I wonder how people felt about Anna. I wonder how they responded to Anna. As we read the text, there's obviously a group similar to Anna. We'll come back to them later. They looked for and they were waiting for the Messiah to come. You see, the country was in a terrible state. It couldn't have gone any worse. They were under the oppression of the Roman. Roman laws were being implemented. They were being restricted as to what they could do. They were having to pay a tax which went to Caesar. The religious practices of the day were ritualistic, governed by laws, by rules, by regulations. Three groups, but primarily Pharisees and Sadducees, controlled how you behaved, what you did. And as you approached the temple complex, you were met by people there making money out of it. It was extortion. You had to change your money. You had to purchase from them to offer a sacrifice. Things were bad. There was hints of rebellion, economically, socially, physically, spiritually. The people were in bad shape. And yet there was a group, a small group, who had hope. A small group who were looking for a promise. And Anna was there in the temple, at least 84 years of age, and Simeon was there, and she knew Simeon because of the reference in here. And Anna watched as Simeon took hold of this little child. And the word that is there said that she came alongside. It implies that she came along suddenly. Suddenly she was standing there beside Simeon as he took this child in his arms. And as he stated what he looked at, he said last week, 
as he uttered that prayer and that statement and that prophecy and sang that hymn. She heard it. And here was a young girl and her husband and the baby. And Anna watched as they took that child. And she realized she had seen the promise, the one who was to come. But Anna was special. Remember I said to you Tanaka-san's name meant in the middle of the rice field? Uh, we today don't have that. We don't understand that. My parents didn't give me the name David because it had some special meaning. I still don't know why they gave me it, but they did. You've been given a name, some family connection, but there, there's no deep meaning in it. But Anna is listed in great detail. Look at it. Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. So what? Yeah, it does give us a, a, an historical context, which we talked about last week. But there's a far greater significance in that little name. The daughter of Phanuel. Phanuel means the face of God face of God. Anna, as she stood there looking upon that child, saw the face of God, the incarnation. But there's a far, far, far more deeper meaningful meaning. It comes from Genesis 32, right away back. And in Genesis chapter 32, the same word, Pharaoh, only spelt slightly different, but exactly the same meaning, is recorded whenever Jacob wrestled with God, with an angel, whatever. And if you remember that story, Jacob wrestled with God, and at that time his hip was dislocated, and God spoke into him, and he says, Jacob, you are no longer to be known as Jacob. You are to be called Israel. Israel. You are to be known as Israel. And Jacob said, I will call this place Phanuel, the face of God. And so this name takes us right back to the start of a nation, the Jewish nation. Jacob, you are to be called Phanuel, or the place to be called Phanuel. You're to be called Israel. And right throughout the Old Testament, this name reappears negatively every time. It talks of chaos. It call, talks of division talks of disobedience, 
Jacob had 12 sons. Number eight was Asher. She was of the tribe of Asher. So what? By the way, this is where a well-known bakery gets her name from. Because the tribe of Asher were bakers. We're told that in the Bible. We're told that they made lovely food. They, they were, made glorious food. They were wealthy. They lived in the far northwestern extent of the land, as far away from Jerusalem as you could get. After Solomon, the 12 tribes split. Ten of them in the north became known as Israel. One of those ten was the tribe of Asher. It split. It moved away. It was disobedient. And in its disobedience, it rebelled against God, and they started to worship the false gods of the Canaanites, and the people of Asher in particular refused to fight the Canaanite and were absorbed into their culture. So whenever a Jew would read this name, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, they see a picture completely different to what you or I would see. They would see division. They would see a split. They would see rebellion. They would see ten tribes which were gone. And today, contemporary, they would have looked upon themselves of the tribe of Judah and Benjamin as being the true, true Jew in the temple of Jerusalem. But Asher, or Anna, was there. A member of one of the ten tribes, a name associated with the, the birth of the nation, a name that is associated with conflict, a name that is associated with division, and she's here, right in the center of the story. Why? Why is she here? Because of what we read. I want you to look at verse 38. And it says she looked for the redemption in Jerusalem. And if you go up into verse number 25, you read, she, he was, Simeon was waiting or looking for the consolation of Israel. That word looking or waiting is only used 12 times in the New Testament. We talked about it last week. But it actually, as a reader, when you would read this, you'd say, oh, wait a minute, I, I came across that word earlier. And whenever you look for, look for the redemption, you're immediately reminded that Simeon was waiting for the consolation, waiting for the comfort of Israel. 
And let me give you a little bit of explanation. If you have gone into the synagogue, and if you had listened to the rabbi reading the prophetic words, primarily he would have gone into the Old Testament and he'd have read from the book of Isaiah. They'd have picked up the book of Isaiah and they'd have started reading at chapter 40 right through to chapter 66. That would have been their prophetic word. The promise of a Messiah. The promise of a conquering Messiah as they understood it. One who would come and who would totally liberate the land. One who would exalt and bring to fruition all that the Jewish nation hoped for. They had seen it there in chapters 40 to 66 of the book of Isaiah. Chapter 40 starts with the consolation of Israel, waiting for the comfort of Israel. And 13 times, repeatedly right till nearly the very end, in verse uh, chapter 66, Isaiah talks about the redemption of Israel. And so you've got the two bookends. You've got the start of the book of Isaiah, in chapter, the chapter 40, and you've got the end of chapter 66, the comfort and redemption. It's here. Luke is actually pointing us to a very important point. He's saying that not only has the Messiah come, but it's a fulfillment of all that was promised in the book of Isaiah. The rabbis would have read it. The children would have known it. And by using these two phrases, by two different people, by using the word looking and waiting, Luke is emphasizing the fact that this is the fulfillment of all that was promised in the book of Isaiah. Comfort me, my people, and redemption. You see, the people of Israel applied it to their own circumstances. But whenever Luke wrote that he was looking at the glory of the Lord, when he said, I have seen the glory of your people Israel, when Simeon said that, he was looking right into the future, way past this event, way past a baby lying in a mother's arms, way past a cross, way past to something far more future, something which is still to be fulfilled, a prophecy which is still to come about. Simeon and Anna by uttering the words that I am waiting for the glory of your people Israel and looking for the redemption of Israel. We're going to Isaiah 40 to 66. God says, 
Jerusalem will become the capital city of a new heaven and a new earth. Jerusalem will have a special role. It will be glorified. And so what we have here is not simply a prophecy about an incarnation, a prophecy about the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ would die for us, the fact that He would be the Savior of the world, which we talked to last week. We're talking about a time yet to come when you have the full glory of God here on earth and redeemed, we stand in His presence. That's why Anna's there. Because she completes the circle. She's the other bookend. Oh, let me take you back to the temple. The Gentile couldn't get into the temple. The woman could only go into a certain place. The restrictions were extreme and limiting. But both of them are talking about a future event which will see the light for all people. Listen to what Simeon says. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Whenever we go to the book of Revelation, we read that the tribes are gathered together again. No more division. No more splitting. No more two kingdoms. United in God's presence. And Anna, by her very name, is an illustration of what was to come. But she spoke of him, told everyone, told all who would listen about the redemption of Jerusalem. Why was the child there? Why was Jesus in the Mount Mary's arms? He was being redeemed. He was being redeemed. You see, I reminded you last week that firstborn had to go down by the age of 40, day, uh, 40 days with his mother, and they paid five shekels to redeem the firstborn from service in the priesthood. A price was paid to bring them out, and here it is, the redemption of Israel. This child who's been redeemed is going to redeem us all. The price is paid. The price is paid. And so when Luke goes to these two people, Two elderly people, two people who had done their time, two people who were tired, that their aches 
their pains. One said, now that I've seen the child, I'm ready to go home. One said, now that I've seen the child, I'm not going to stop talking about him. What a contrast. And she went and she spoke to those who were looking for the redemption in Jerusalem. And we will come to them when we look at the third talk in this series on New Year's Day. Who were the people looking for? Whenever Fanny Cosby was a matter of weeks old, she had a problem with her eyes. The family sent for a doctor. He came and he looked at her and he put a mustard poultice on her eyes to draw out the infection. A mustard poultice. The consequence of that was that she was left with eyes which were scarred, blind. But Annie, or Fanny Crosby, continued to serve and became that well-known hymn writer. And Annie wrote the words of blessed assurance. We're going to sing it in a minute. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Don't forget she's blind. Visions of rapture burst in my sight. Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy, whispers of love. That could be the words of Simeon and Anna. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. And I could have written that hymn. That was what her message was. Praising him all the day long. Let's sing Blessed Assurance.